Welcome to The Calm Down. This week, we're talking phantom clown panics, horror movies, and the uncanny valley. My guest is John Campo-Piano, an independent filmmaker, writer, and film collector who works for PBS's Frontline. His debut documentary explored Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, and his latest project, now in post-production, is an all-encompassing look at the 1990 miniseries It, starring Tim Curry. John has also co-written a new short film inspired by It called Georgie, which is due out in the spring, both of which I am so excited for. We've already covered the panic. Now here's the calm down. All right, I'm here with John Campo Piano. Is that right? Did I get that right? All right. right. Such a great last name. Hi, John. Thank you for talking to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, and as mentioned in the intro, John is working on probably the most exciting project I've ever heard of in my life for my personal taste. <laughs> um, the a documentary about uh, the original It movie, the miniseries that was made in 1990 that I talked about in the episode. So we're going to talk about all things clown-related and horror-related and kind of the uncanny valley and why we're into this stuff because i think it's safe to say john you're also kind of a big horror mega fan yes oh absolutely yes yeah. well can you tell me kind of how you got into i mean the work you're doing is just amazing how did you get into working on a documentary about a horror film that you i know kind of deeply love like i do how did you get into this work yeah so the, the it started with a, a documentary before the this one um uh, on Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, and um, basically the way that that started was a, a good friend of mine, um, Justin, is a huge fan of that book and the the movie, like I am, and we decided to drive the five hours north from where we are in New England up to Bangor and to see some of the filming locations from Pet Cemetery. And while we were up there, we started meeting locals who had stories to tell and even behind the scenes photographs that they had taken that no one had seen before. And they said, "Well, if you're interested in the film, you should talk to this person and that person," and the one trip became five trips and that became 10 trips. And we realized about halfway through having this documentary that we were making a documentary. We, we weren't even cognizant of it. We were just following leads and doing the research. And so that became, um, unearthed and untold the path to pet cemetery, which was, um, a debut documentary that we made just the two of us. Um, and it played some festivals a few years ago and, uh, was picked up for distribution and so that kind of opened the door to this idea of, hey, maybe I could make films. Maybe I could do documentaries and tell stories And um, because my background is not in film. Um, so that was never a cog- like a conscious goal. Um, and then um, I've always loved it and always wanted to do a documentary, but it's the source material is so massive and the miniseries is so big that I just knew I couldn't do it on my own. And Justin had no interest in doing another project. So I started writing articles, um, uh, some small interviews I was doing with cast and crew from the miniseries and a guy named Gary Smart in England got wind of it, had interest in doing a documentary on his own uh, about it and got in touch with me and said, hey, would you like to come on board and co-produce and write a documentary? So I said, you know, absolutely. And uh, that was in 2016. And um, we've been working on it ever since. And so can you tell me kind of 
first of all, that is so exciting. I just, it's so fun. <laughs> it's like, what yeah. a fun project because I also, um, I'd say the only movie that comes close to my love of it is Blair Witch Project. And I went to Burkittsville with a couple people who were on the show. Um, my friend, or actually my friend Will, who was on the show, we went up to Burkittsville and that was, it was just such a, you know, we went to the places and stood in the exact location and took the exact photos and it was just oh, so, definitely. so much fun. And, and it was, it was kind of thrilling in this dorky yeah. way you know it's just thrilling and so how what was it for you about it how did you come into your love of it and pennywise were you a kid like i was yeah i was i was little um you know i grew up as an only child and so um a lot of the early horror films that i was exposed to as a kid and when i say a kid i mean you know second third fourth grade um i was introduced to by an older brother of my best friend josh who lived across the street from me and his brother was two, three years older. So he was watching all the, that stuff, you know, he was going to the video store and he was renting, you know, all the classic fare of that, that era, you know, late eighties, early nineties, like the Friday the 13th and everything and, and would put them on and we would watch them with him. And it felt exciting, you know, because we were watching something we knew we weren't old enough to see. And, um, and so, that was exactly how it happened with it. He came home with the, uh, that original two tape black, you know, uh, VHS copy and popped it in. And, uh, that was my first experience seeing it though. I guess that's a little bit misleading because I didn't really get past, uh, the scene where Jonathan Brandis throws the, the photo album onto the floor and the pages start moving and Georgie winks at them. I was absolutely terrified. Um, I hadn't gotten to the age where I enjoyed being terrified. I was just terrified. Um, and so I, I split and ran out of the house, like physically ran out of the house um, after that scene <laughs> and and didn't revisit it and see it in its entirety uh, for you know a couple of years uh, later. So but that was my first experience with the miniseries. I mean, I think. I think that the reason that I'm still a, the, a bigger fan and like you, we were talking a second ago before we started recording about nostalgia and how um, I know that nostalgia, of course, colors both of our love of the original um, versus the new remake, which, of course, is great. But for me, is just never going to touch the original. And I think for me, it's because of Tim Curry. And did you get to talk to Tim Curry yet for your for this documentary? Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to um, have had a few uh, encounters with Tim in person. Um, the first was at a convention back in 2016 down in New Jersey. Um, and actually before that, I had spoken with him on the phone. I had um, done an interview uh, with him over the phone that was going to be the next article I was going to write. Um, but in between editing and publishing that article, I, Gary had gotten in touch with me and, and asked to come on board to do a doc. And so I, I sort of just sat on that interview and didn't do anything with it. Um, the third time was in the summer of 2016 when we went to Tim's home in Burbank, California and spent an afternoon with him and interviewed him for the, the doc. He was actually the very first or the second interview that we did for the doc out of what has become, I think, 37 or 38 interviews. So. Did he have any um, – did he share anything that you would share with us sort of about what it was like to portray like a villain that was so terrifying to people? It was kind of a new kind of terrifying, I think, Pennywise was. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, 
he he wasn't on the set a great deal. I mean, he was flying back and forth between um, L.A. and Vancouver where they filmed the miniseries. And um, so I think for that reason, he sort of had his distance between the rest of what was going on. But also, as a lot of actors will do, um, you know, he was keeping his distance from especially the kids to sort of, you know, enhance the the scares when they needed to really turn it on on the camera. Um, you know, Tim, Tim talked a lot about and I think that some of this is kind of out there in the zeitgeist. But, um, you know, Tim had just sort of come off legend and was not interested at all in being covered in makeup and covered in Mm -hmm. prosthetics. Um, you know, I think you work on a film and you're in the makeup chair for, you know, six, seven hours a day, uh, for like a month, you know, that'll really sort of take the, um, take the romance out of being in special effects makeup. So, um, he talked about not wanting to, you know, wear a lot of makeup for Pennywise and, and how it was a real collaboration between him, the director, Tommy Lee Wallace, and the special effects makeup guru on that project, a guy named Bart Mixon. It was a real uh, team effort between the three of them to figure out what was Pennywise going to look like and was it going to be comfortable for Tim? You know, would he be willing to sit through whatever it was that they came up with? And so what's on the screen is, uh, you know, the result of that collaboration between the three of them. I mean, his makeup is really unorthodox for a clown. When you think about uh, what we think of as a clown with the overblown features, his features are kind of inverted and very, um, very sharp and subtle. And, you know, his lips are thin, his eyebrows are tiny. It's, you know, I don't know, it's it's a terrifying, yeah. whoever came up with that, and it's probably that person that you just, what was the name of the makeup person you mentioned? Uh- Bart Mixon. Bart Mixon. I'm sure that that was, I mean, brilliant. Just absolutely iconically brilliant. I I just. And the the forehead too. I mean, you know, a lot of, um, you know, the the sort of the subtleties. I'm always a believer of less is more, you know, like once you see like a grotesque monster, like there's that jarring first moment of like, oh, wow, that's terrifying. But then you quickly adapt and it's like, okay, it's just like a, a terrifying monster. But with so much of the stuff in the miniseries, and I think a lot of this had to do with budget too, frankly, but, um, you know, the the scares are subtle. I mean, the Mrs. Curse stuff terrified me as a kid. Ooh, yeah. You know, like the slow disintegration from a nice old lady to, you know, Bev's father as a zombie. Uh, it was terrifying. And, and so with Tim's forehead, you know, it's like slightly bulbous, you know, like he's got a very – it's a, a prosthetic that he's wearing on his head. And at certain points in the in the miniseries, he's got, you know, prosthetic cheekbones. But they're never so dramatic that he looks – you know, like he did as, as, um, you know, in legend, um, it's, it's subtle enough that it's just something off about it. It's just enough distortion. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think they really sort of struck the sweet spot, uh, with his look. They really did. And I think that kind of leads, I think, well into just talking about the episode that you listened to, um, and of American hysteria and also what, like what, what you're interested in, in terms of the idea of the clown, like what stuck out to you the most in that episode? Was it stuff about the uncanny Valley? What was it? And then kind of what are you talking about in your documentary in terms of this clown as an archetype? Yeah. I mean, so the, you know, one of the things that stood out is, is the, the historical component of clowns, which is something that we get into in the documentary. Um, you know, even as far back as you mentioned, you know, going all the way back to England and the jesters and, and all these, um, you know, sort of the following the lineage of as clowns evolved in pop culture, 
um, what that, you know, what was going on in terms of fears or phobias or how they were being perceived or how they were being utilized in a commercial way or an entertainment way or whatever. Um, and obviously Gacy has a, you know, a lot to do with, um, you know, the, the perception of clowns from that era. I mean, I didn't grow up with Gacy. I wasn't aware of it. I was too young and wasn't alive when all of that was happening. Um, and believe it or not, I, I didn't grow up with a fear of clowns. I mean, I think, you know, I, Tim scared me in the miniseries initially because he's terrifying, but it wasn't, oh, he's a terrifying clown. It was just, this is a, an evil character. And, and, um, he's, he's playing against the type that he's made to look as, which is a clown. And he, he looks like a clown, but he's not acting like a clown. And so I think that disconnect is what terrified me, you know, and, and in some ways it still does, you know, when I watch horror films now, the stuff that scares me are, are the, the subtleties, the, the very, you know, the very sleight of hand, the less is more approach rather than, you know, sort of the torture porn, blood and guts and all that stuff. So, um, but to answer your question, I mean, you know, the thing that stuck out to me in the episode was, um, you know, the, the, talking about the historical lineage of clowns. Um, one thing that you did not, I don't think got into, um, which is something that has come up again and again for us making this documentary is how legitimate are people's fears and phobias. So to give you an example of what I mean, we interviewed uh, a professional clown when we were in Los Angeles shooting interviews. Um, I really wanted to get not just an academic perspective on clowns and Tim Curry and Pennywise and Stephen King, but also I really wanted to get an inside look at someone who is a practicing performer and what their take is on um, chlorophobia and clowns and Pennywise and all that stuff. And we interviewed a guy named Guilford Adams, who is an awesome person inside and out. And he's a performer. He's a clown. He is um, a, th a therapy clown. So he spends a lot of times, a lot of time in hospitals with kids. And he said, you know, in some ways, he was kind of calling BS on the people, you know, people that say they have a fear of clowns. He, he said, you know, it's, it's trendy to be afraid of clowns. And he said it's almost become for some people and it's a generalization and it's an assumption. But I, I can see that there could be some truth to it. He said, you know, a lot of the times it's it's a it's a mechanism to bond with other people. It's like, oh, you're afraid of clowns. Oh, me too. Clowns terrify me. And when we interviewed him, he was kind of poking at that a little bit. and was like, really? Like, what is it? Like, people just say they have this fear of clowns, but what is it really? And and he was suggesting maybe it's, you know, trendy. Maybe it's, you know, people just say that they're afraid of clowns because that seems to be the thing. And, and but are they really? And if you sort of probed at it and you dug a little deeper with these people, like, well, exactly why? You know, what is it about your fear? And could they, you know, could they justify it? I don't know. It's an interesting theory. I don't think you're wrong at all. I've, I thought about talking about that actually in the episode because it is something that came on so quickly, you know, like as we talked about in the episode, it was like clowns were mega stars with 10 year waits, like with Bozo. And then after Gacy, it was just like a pretty big plummet. And I think though, it's, I think it, it's not, I think people have a general, like there's an unease, you know, like with the uncanny Valley, there's like clowns there's something about it you know you can't see their face there's maybe some kind of instinctual revulsion to them and then i think we play on that and then i think it becomes sort of a viral meme in a way to be afraid of clowns and but i do think there might be a, a general there's something i didn't i wasn't afraid of clowns either it was specifically tim curry i'm still not necessarily afraid of them but i would say that they make me more nervous say if i'm going through a haunted house than maybe 
other characters. If yeah, that makes sense, no, ab- you know. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just thought of a clown that I haven't thought of in a while. Um, there was a show growing up when I was a kid called Are You Afraid of the Dark? And mm-hmm. there was Zebo. Oh, I know. I know Zebo. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of him, but he he was terrifying. And you know, I think one of the things that you did talk about in the episode, which I agree with, and has come up a lot with us doing this documentary, which is that you know, in many ways, clowns in their physical form are exaggerated, you know, not just in their appearance, but also in their, in their movements, you know, everything is loud and kind of, and, and exaggerated. And I think especially for children that could come off as, as really kind of intrusive and, um, over the top. And I think just by that nature, it being different and being so exaggerated, it is in some way scary. Right. And there's also that other aspect of, you can't really read a clown's face. I mean, if they have a smile painted on their face, but they're grinning at you, it's like the brain doesn't compute. It's like, what am I supposed to be? How am I supposed to be interpreting this? And so I think that that can be scary for a lot of people too, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I love the uncanny Valley theory. It's one of my favorite, um, just, I don't know, I guess it sounds really nerdy to say it's one of my favorite aesthetics theories, but you know, it's like, I really love, I think it's really accurate because I just spent some days at at Disney World in Florida and it is like living in the Uncanny Valley. I mean, it's absolutely I love it, but it's it's bizarre, you know, and it's creepy and the animatronics are weird and outdated. And I don't know. I think that I'm interested in I have a really big phobia. (laughs) This is funny to me, but it's it's kind of really true. I have a big phobia of people on stilts. So people who mm. are like walking around, they got to be wearing the pants. So it looks like, you know, they have really long, freaky legs that I cannot look at that. Like if I had a real phobia, it would actually be like I get physical symptoms. I clam up. And that's, I think, part of the uncanny valley because it is this this exaggerated inhuman but slightly human form so our brains just don't compute and i'm wondering do you have any thing like that like dolls or if it's not clowns you have anything that kind of lives in the uncanny valley that makes you particularly uneasy you know i think um i don't you know i don't i don't really know i mean i'm sure i do it's not clowns i mean because you know over the last few years i've actually been discovering looking at home movie footage and photos that my parents took when I was a kid that, you know, I I actually spent a lot of time with clowns. Like we go to the zoo and I've got photos of me getting my face painted and I've got, you know, ceramic clowns in my childhood bedroom that my grandmother made me. And so they were just like, they seem to be everywhere. And I don't, I don't seem terrified or disturbed in these photos and I don't have any memory of being disturbed by them. Um, I think in terms of like, for me, horror films, you know, there's obviously like, a longstanding tradition of, you know, playing against type within the horror film. So, I mean, there's so many films about like kids, you know, evil kids or murdering children that, you know, like kids aren't really seen as dangerous, but there are so many movies of, of children being possessed and, and of looking innocent and then being deadly, you know, same with elderly people, sort of the other end of the life spectrum, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, little grandma, you know, actually being like a bloodthirsty killer or like a serial killer or something. I mean, there's so many films they've done that story time and time and time again. And those seem to actually bother me a little bit. Um, you know, it's not, it's not so much the monster in the closet or under the bed. It's, it's really more so 
when you can bring reality and fiction and have them be as almost as close as they can possibly be, that little sliver of like weirdness is is kind of what still creeps me out. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. So do you have um, – what are your favorite horror movies outside of It? Outside of It, favorite horror movies. There's a, there's a film called Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Okay. I have, you have my attention. Okay. Yeah. What is it? So it's – Let's Scare Jessica to Death is really about – it's sort of like a feminist horror film. And it's, it's really focused on this woman, Jessica, who has been released from a mental institution and she has moved. It's kind of like a hippie horror film. It's from the 70s. And she moves to this country house by a lake with her husband and some friends. And the film is really all just about her paranoia. And is she cured? Is she not cured? Is she actually seeing ghosts and vampires? Is she not? The people that she's living with don't think she's cured. She thinks she's better. So it's this kind of very disorienting um look inside uh, this suicidal woman dealing with mental health issues and whether or not she's having paranormal experiences. It's a beautiful film. It's a low budget film, but um, look it up if you haven't seen it. It's really great. What's the name of it one more time? Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Awesome. Well, it's a great, it's a great uh, title. Um, Absolutely. I, I'm interested. Uh, one more thing before we go, just horror for me has been sort of I, I try to put my finger on what is it about horror that I love so much because it is it, it's it's such a funny thing to feel so fond of and to get so much kind of relief from but I know a lot of people have written about a lot of psychologists have studied that horror films help us vent anxiety and I know that that's something that I need and a lot of people need right now and I'm just interested in what what value do you see in in horror and things you know even when they come bleed out into our society like a killer clown panic like what does that do for us do you think yeah I mean I you know I sort of love I, there, there's a bunch of different camps of horror films that I love I mean you know I love when there's it's a social commentary about something or it's you know a metaphor it's trying to um, you know, there's a, a low budget Canadian film that I've been dealing with at the moment, uh, a separate project called The Brain, and it's a very low budget film. But 
back in the 80s, this director was trying to say, like, look, we are entering a dangerous time of this 24 hour news cycle. People are glued to their televisions. They're losing their autonomy. They're losing their ability to come up with their own opinions about things. We're getting brainwashed. And he told it through the lens of this monster movie, which is a lot of fun. And that sort of touches on, you know, one of the things for me with horror films, which is it's pure escapism. You know, I, I love I love kind of throwing the rule book out the window and 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 kind of losing myself in, in, in a horror film. Um, you know, I've never been big into, like I said before, the sort of torture porn or, or heavily violent. I really am much more interested in and in kind of the supernatural and and suggestive horror films and letting letting me put in some of the own my own, you know, story and, and sort of um, imagining in my own mind kind of what um, what's happening. I mean, Jaws is another big film for me. You know, you mentioned going to some of the locations from Blair Witch. I mean, I grew up not far from Martha's Vineyard where they shot Jaws. And so to actually physically go there and feel like I'm in the movie was huge for me growing up. And that's another film where there's a lot of subtlety and things you don't see that that's always more terrifying for me rather than the reveal. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're interested in is what we talked about in the episode of creepiness, this, this ambiguous threat. It's not, it's not the blood and guts, torture, everything's out in the open. It's that feeling that you get where you're not sure what's happening. You're not sure what, what to be afraid of, if anything. And I think that's what I like too. I, I agree with you there. And that's definitely, I think, where killer clowns lie on the spectrum of horror. So absolutely. Well, thank you so much, John. And so excited for the documentary. You gotta, you gotta give me an advanced copy. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yep. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, anytime, John, come back sometime. Thank you so much. From Skylark, this was American Hysteria's The Calm Down. My guest this week was John Campo Piano. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this episode was produced by Clear Camo Studios. Join me next week for our newest episode on The Gay Agenda. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.